and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. This is our first episode of the year 2022, so Happy New Year to you all, and I hope you had a wonderful holiday break. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation about the attempts to revive the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and the ongoing negotiations that were happening in Vienna. This conversation happened on Twitter Space. If you're not familiar with the platform, Twitter Space is an audio live conversation where speakers and audience can be listening to it live and the speakers can take questions from their live audience. We're planning to have more conversation on Twitter Spaces and I invite you all to tune into these conversations through the Iran podcast platform and my own Twitter account at Negar Mortazavi. If you follow me, you'll get notified of future conversations on Twitter spaces. This conversation was with speakers Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute, Ryan Costello from the National Iranian American Council, and Sara Hardusti from Win Without War. The conversation happened in December of last year, and I moderated the conversation on Twitter Spaces. Hello, good morning, and good afternoon, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us. We are going to have an informal conversation about the latest um, on the Iran nuclear negotiations happening in Vienna, or actually just wrapped up the seventh round of negotiations that sort of happened in two parts. We're hearing both positive and negative news from the Austrian capital. We would like to discuss the issue, um, U.S. position, Iran's position, the threat of military attacks. We keep hearing this talk of a potential military strike on Iran's nuclear sites um, by Israel or Israeli officials trying to convince the United States to launch a military attack on Iran's nuclear sites. Um, and this urgency, the sense of urgency to come to an agreement or revive the JCPOA. Um, and we'll, I would also like to talk a little bit about sanctions and how they're impacting the people of Iran during a deadly pandemic. Today, we'll have Ryan, we have already Ryan Costello from the National Iranian American Council, Trita Parsi from... Uh, the Quincy Institute, great. And now I see Sara Hardusti from Win Without War. Um, all three are excellent experts. Um, I believe all are in Washington. So um, I welcome all our speakers and um, I'll just let you say a few words and then we can get into a discussion and I'll ask you more direct questions. Trita, Ryan and Sara, hello. Thanks for having me. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's great to be here as well. How are you? <laughs> great. Lovely to have you both. We This is my first, I think, or second Twitter space. I'm glad it's working. And I thank our audience for joining us. So we'll be discussing with our speakers um, for a while, for a little bit, and then I'll be taking some questions from the audience and then going back to the speakers. I also see some other um experts in the audience who follow these issues very closely. So I'd like to hear from them as well. Um, either all three of you, actually, let me just start by saying what you're hearing as far as the latest um, 
happening in Vienna. We know the seventh round was just concluded. Um, I heard some positive news from the European Union rep, Enrique Mora, but um, from the U.S. and Iran side, um, it's it's not. It's still the sense of negativity coming of each side, basically um, projecting that the other is not trying to meet them where they stand. Um, Trita, let's start with you, and then we can move on to Sarah and Ryan about what they're hearing and their analysis. Sure. Thank you so much, and um, great to try this new uh, platform. Um, what I'm hearing is that essentially we're kind of back to square one. There is now finally an agreement on at least one set of the text to start working off of. But in the past two weeks, there really hasn't been much negotiations on the substance. The uh, Obviously, which text is negotiated from is somewhat decisive of what the outcome can become. Um, but when it comes to the core issues of sanctions relief, assurances, um, and uh, synchronization, there hasn't been much done. And that is what's now has to happen in the next round, whether that will be next this week or next week. Um, and it, it's very clear that on the one hand, the signals from Europe and the United States is that time is running out. And I think there is, um, uh, you know, some uh, they're, they're quite genuine when it comes to the, the pressure, the time pressure, uh, at least if you take a look at it from the American standpoint, if we just set aside uh, non-proliferation considerations, we are starting to get into the midterm elections, and that's going to just complicate matters just as much as the presidential elections complicated matters on the Iranian side. But at the same time, you can also see that um, some of the signaling that the Russians and the Chinese are completely on board with the United States and Europe and putting pressure on Iran or frustrated with Iran, there is some truth in it, but it's also very clear that they're trying to uh, eke out a space in which they're mediating, and as a result, they're not going to entirely take the side of Iran or take the side of the United States, but try to find some common ground. And we actually need them to do that rather than trying to just push them to entirely um, uh, take one side, thinking that if they just pressure Iran, everything will work out. Because at the end of the day, the core issue that I see from the Iranian side is that the sanctions relief that the United States is putting on the table lacks credibility. It lacks credibility because there's unclarity as to whether the United States will stick to the agreement after after Biden uh, leaves office. And as a result, even if it, the sanctions are lifted today, it is unclear to the Iranians how much business will come into Iran, given the fact that businesses don't believe that the deal is going to be durable post-Biden. So on the one hand, there's quite uh, certainty, clarity on what the Iranians will do and what they will deliver, but there's a tremendous amount of lack of clarity on what the actual effect of the sanctions relief will be. And as long as that is the case, I don't think that just putting pressure is going to be the, the solution to try to make this thing work. There has to be something done uh, on uh, the sanctions relief, whether it's assurances or other things to bring about greater clarity. And to some extent, what the Iranians are doing right now is also making that work more complicated because now we've seen all of December more or less pass by without any actual substantive uh, addressing of these different issues. Great. Thank you so much, Trita. Let's, um, uh, uh, I was going to go to Sarah, but I see her moved 
back into the listener. Let's go to Ryan. Ryan Costello, what are you hearing from Vienna, the, the Iranian side, the U.S. side, European partners, Russia, China, and what is your assessment of where things are standing post-seventh round of negotiations, which was a pretty long round? Well, I think Trita gave a kind of a great summary of where, you know, things stand, uh, you know, heading into kind of the, the start of the, the second half of the seventh round, uh, for those who follow this really closely. Uh, it looked really bad. The E3 was issuing, you know, threatening statements. There was no signs of progress. And then suddenly you have a, a bit of light on the, the horizon with the IAEA agreement to allow uh, monitoring at the Karaj centrifuge facility. And then you, you reach some sort of agreement on the, the path forward this, with this uh, draft text that, that Trita discussed. So, you know, a bit of progress, but as he said, absolutely no, you know, concrete, uh, you know, delivery of, of substance and, and the gaps, you know, remain, I, I think, pretty stark. And so there's still a need for substantive negotiations and, you know, trade-offs to be made on, on sanctions, relief and assurances, uh, you know, I think at the top of the list. Uh, you know, one thing just kind thinking back about where we were a year ago at this time, we had a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment saying, essentially, hey, there's no need for Biden uh, when he comes into office to rush back into this agreement. Uh, the sanctions provide him plenty of leverage. Iran is going to be forced back to the table and, you know, is going to be have to concede to U.S. demands. And I think what we've seen is basically that uh, assessment being proven false over, you know, not just the initial six rounds, but here and the seventh round of negotiations as well and heading into the eighth. Essentially, the time is on the Iranian side. They've made a ton of nuclear advances, see themselves as having a lot of leverage still uh, to get concessions. And what is the U.S. leverage? Well, it's sanctions relief. And it's not even really, you know, all that clear exactly how long the sanctions relief can be implemented, how effective it will be after the U.S. withdrawal. And, uh, you know, what else, uh, you know, might be on the table to make these uh, negotiations work? So, you know, the, the side, which I think constitutes all of us who are, who are speaking on this call, who are saying, look, Biden has a limited time horizon to get back into the deal. He needs to take advantage of it. He needs to move decisively starting on day one you know, that would have been a much uh, better position for him to be in instead of, you know, halfway through, uh, you know, the way to the midterms here, uh, no deal in hand, uh, new Iranian leadership, which is probably less interested in, in sanctions relief to begin with and, and thinking it has plenty of options here if the talks collapse. So uh, there is a glimmer of light on the horizon, but it's a, a tough path forward here. Thank you, Ryan. And, uh, another warm welcome. Hello to um, everyone who's joined us. I hear a lot of um, uh, familiar faces in the audience. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, let me go to Sarah. Sarah Hardusi, and also congratulations to you. Sarah is a deputy director at Win Without War, but she will soon uh, be the new um, executive director of the organization. So congratulations and give us your assessment of where the talks uh, are right now. And if you can talk about um, the this uh, domestic dynamic in Washington, how it's affecting the Biden administration's position and also the threat of war or the talk of military uh, strikes that we're hearing um, over and over again here. Absolutely. And thank you for that congratulations. And thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. 
Um, I completely agree with Trita and Ryan's analysis. And in terms of your question, what I think that I would love to see more of in the analysis is the urgency of the moment as well. We've seen how devastating the impacts of COVID have been throughout the world. We also know that those devastating impacts are happening in Iran and that the sanctions are making it much harder to access medical supplies and access help that people need. And I think that when we talk about sanctions relief, having real sanctions relief is incredibly important. And moving away from this concept of collective punishment, especially on a population that has so little say in their government, is incredibly important. Um, and again, with rising COVID cases globally, with new variants, that is incredibly urgent. And I would love to see the Biden administration do more in sanctions relief, especially in this moment, especially with what is happening globally and to really push forward with diplomacy. I think another thing we don't hear of nearly enough is that the vast majority of people in America do not want to see another war in the Middle East. The, they want to see these talks work. They want to see diplomacy work. And we need to make sure that we're seeing real leadership on this issue and that there is more embracing of creative solutions, of actually looking at what does real sanctions relief look like and real leadership in this moment instead of just finger pointing. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I just want to remind our audience that in a, after this discussion, we will take, I'll be taking questions from the audience. So if you want to, I already see there's a queue. If you want to join the queue, um, I'll bring you up after about um, 10, 15 more minutes of discussion. But let me go back to Trita. Trita, we hear an increasing talk um, of, of the threat of a military uh, strike, military action against Iran, um, either by Israel or we also hear about Israeli officials, senior officials trying to convince the United States to um, do this on on sort of on their behalf or for for them. Talk about how serious this threat of uh, military action on Iran's nuclear sites is, and what the consequences of that would be. And we also hear doubts. Um, basically, we we hear um, uh, discussions of uh, the fact that Israel may not even be capable of launching. Uh, such a such an attack, a strike on Iran. Talk about that dynamic and how serious you think this threat of military action is. Uh, thank you, Nigar. Uh, <clears throat> I think the risk of war, unfortunately, continues to exist, uh, largely because of the risk of miscalculation and uncontrolled escalation. But I do believe that the risk of war is actually quite a bit lower than it was back in 2013, 2014, and 2012 uh, during those phases of uh, not, ne not necessarily negotiations in 2012, but um, when, when this issue was coming to a climax. I think it is quite clear that the Biden administration does not have the appetite for a military confrontation that they know quite well would lead to some form of a regional confrontation. Uh, Biden had pulled out of Afghanistan, a decision that I think he was absolutely right 
in doing, but he's been falsely claiming that the United States is not at war for the first time in 20 years. That's simply not true. But it tells you something about how important it is to be able to claim that you've ended a war because it is extremely popular amongst the population. War fatigue in the United States is immense. And for a president to pull out of Afghanistan only to walk into a much, much larger war with Iran would play extremely badly um, uh, with the electorate. It would be tremendously uh, problematic for the 2024 elections and the 2022, not to mention the strategic disasters it would cause. Similarly, I think the Israelis know quite well. The Israelis do not have a unilateral military option against Iran. What they could do in the past was to start a war with the hope or the calculation that it would force the United States into that war uh, in order for the U.S. to try to finish it. And even that is a bit of a question mark. Today, however, I think many of the Israelis themselves have come to the conclusion that even if they were to start a war, it is not as clear cut that the United States would enter that war on Israel's side in order to support them. Yes, the United States would surely provide intelligence, uh, provide um, uh, replenishment of weapons, etc. But would it put troops uh, into action on behalf of the Israelis in that war, a war that the Israelis would start at its own choice of timing without uh, a green light from the United States, even over the objections of the United States? I think the Israelis have reached a conclusion that is not as clear-cut as it was in 2012 or 2011. Uh, and as a result, you're, st- you're seeing not only hesitation on the Israeli side, but you're also seeing a lot of Israeli officials coming out uh, this time around and, and, and uh, essentially calling that bluff uh, because they recognize that if the Israeli leadership were to do this, it would probably end up being alone in that war. Moreover, it would create a tremendous amount of tension with the United States that is not worth it. If you take a look back at what happened in 2010 to 2012, the two instances in which the Israelis almost started a war, a key consideration that caused them not to do so was the fear of the tensions it would cause with the United States. Well, if that was the case back then, you can imagine what it will be today, given how the U.S. electorate has changed in terms of its uh, attitude towards war, as well as the Biden's, uh, Biden administration's um, Uh, effort to really shift America's focus away from the Middle East and towards Asia. So all of those different factors, in my view, make it less likely than it was before that there will be a a war outcome. Uh, And I do worry a little bit, though, because um, when you see some uh, uh, former officials coming out and saying that, you know, you're not going to be able to have a successful negotiation unless the Iranians believe that there is uh, a credible military threat and essentially want to see greater issuances of threats from the Biden administration, I think they're missing the point entirely. Back then, even without uh, Obama issuing threats, the structure of the situation was such that everyone understood that if there's a failure of negotiation, there's a very significant likelihood of war. Today, that the structure doesn't exist in the same way. So if the United States just starts issuing military threats, all that does is that it sabotages whatever little chance of success in the diplomacy that we have. It doesn't change the situation in such a way that actually the Iranians suddenly start to believe that um, Biden has an appetite for a military confrontation. Thanks, Trita. Ryan, I, and I also want to ask this uh, from Sarah after, but what, why hasn't Joe Biden, President Biden, been able to 
come to an agreement with Iran yet? Because we know candidate Biden, I mean, even before he was a candidate, he criticized and senior members of his administration. They warned Donald Trump to not pull out of the JCPOA. They criticized him when he did. They criticized the campaign of maximum pressure, uh, crippling sanctions, military escalation. Um, and some of us expected that the President Biden, when he comes into office, would make this revival of the JCPOA a foreign policy priority or one of his priorities and expected that this uh, return to the deal would happen much earlier. It's now almost a year and maximum pressure hasn't really changed as far as sanctions relief. And we don't see a nuclear agreement. Talk about this domestic and potentially not just domestic foreign dynamic of what has stopped President Biden from, um, you know, prioritizing something that seems like a very important foreign policy issue? Yeah, it's a a great question. I think some of us are, are still asking, you know, why the administration took the approach that it did coming in early. I think you know, thinking back, we had a very chaotic uh, transition where the you know Trump administration wasn't sharing intelligence, uh, you know, with the the incoming transition team, uh, and it turned out there were you know elements of the uh, Trump administration were actually plotting a coup to keep Trump in power, essentially, uh, and that caused a lot of chaos early. I think you know the the, the fact that there was a the Georgia outcome that delivered a fifty fifty Senate. Uh, you know, f- probably pushed Biden to really double down on trying to get a, a very, uh, you know, ambitious domestic agenda through, uh, given this like very limited window where the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency. Of course, we've seen, you know, kind of regardless that run into the rocks with Manchin, uh, you know, pulling uh, the stunt that he did on, on Build Back Better and so forth. So all this prioritization of domestic policy, I think, is really, uh, you know, detracted from uh, the focus needed to seal the deal with Iran. You know, when I think about, you know, the timeline and so forth, this really caused them to stumble kind of in the first eight weeks of the administration. But, you know, there were only about five months uh, before the Iranian elections in June. So, you know, you had this really narrow window. You had, I think, the, the Biden administration trying to consult with the P5 plus one, trying to consult with Israel, uh, when pretty much, you know, the P5 plus one, at least, was, uh, you know, very much in favor of getting uh, the deal back in place. So I'm not sure how much those consultations really uh, gained them. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, Iran's nuclear program continued to advance. You had Israel, uh, I think, a, a big factor sabotage uh, Iran's nuclear facility right when the nuclear talk started in June. So there was already a really narrow window. And, uh, you know, then... Then the sabotage uh, pushed Iran to take its nuclear program to new heights to bring it up to 60% enrichment. And then I think they held back, uh, you know, given that uh, the offers of sanctions relief weren't what they wanted. And, you know, they continued to get their nuclear program hit, uh, you know, by the Israelis, by sabotage, and probably unclear, you know, the extent to which the U.S. was involved. Thanks, Ryan. Sarah, I want to ask the same question of you and also sort of... um, get maybe more focused on the issue of sanctions. I know the Biden administration doesn't like to call it maximum pressure anymore. That was a Trump era policy. But when it comes to economic sanctions, broad, crippling economic sanctions that have basically targeted every major industry in Iran, we haven't seen much change or much sanctions relief, in even in the form of humanitarian 
um, exemptions or relief uh, for Iran during a pandemic. How do you see the position of the Biden administration in this almost one year in office? And what do you think they should be doing simultaneously or regardless of what happens in Vienna uh, with the nuclear negotiations, considering that the call it maximum pressure or not, these sanctions are really impacting average Iranians, the people of Iran who are uh, at the same time dealing with a deadly pandemic? Great question. I think that What's really interesting to see, especially when we look at sanctions analysis, is there's definitely a little bit of confirmation bias going on where the almost undisputed truth in D.C. is that sanctions and pressure in some ways brought Iran to the negotiating table. And it's interesting because now it is widely accepted that maximum pressure was an absolutely failed strategy. But I think what a lot of people fail to look at when they're analyzing the impact of the sanctions on these talks is what was also happening in Iran at the time and the role of people in Iran and the role of popular movements in getting Iran to the negotiating table as well. I think people forget that when Rouhani was elected back in the day, that also happened off the back of a really big movement that was calling for change. And I remember watching the videos of people at Rouhani rallies demanding that all political prisoners in Iran be freed. And I think people, the analysis in the U.S. completely underestimated the power of popular movements in Iran. And what we've seen over the last few years is also how much sanctions have impacted on the people who have been organizing for change in Iran. And we've heard from a whole bunch of activists that they've had to go into mutual aid situations, they've had to focus on just bare necessities. And We've, of course, still seen protests happening and in new places with new voices. But, like, it's also, you can't minimize the impact of the sanctions and the continued stick that has been used on Iran. And again, against people who have very little say in some ways in their government and how hard that has been. And I think we think of people, we think of like sanctions relief as just the right thing to do. And I would really argue that, yes, it is absolutely the right thing to do. It is also the strategic thing to do. We've seen that a lot of people want a better life in Iran. And if they see some relief, if they see some real change in their lives, you can also hopefully see more of them pushing the government to do more, to challenge the corruption that they've been seeing and all of that happening as well. And I think really trying to move from this notion that you can only use a stick to being like, well, what are some carrots we can use that really help the people who are impacted most could be one of the most interesting ways to see how we can get diplomacy, these talks in a slightly better space and increase leverage in a totally new way. Thanks, Sarah. Let me take, we have um, a few members of the audience lining up. Let me take some questions from our audience. I just ask everyone to please 
limit your questions to under a minute and also to make sure that the question ends with a question mark and you're respectful towards all of the speakers. So let me start with Max. Max, can you hear me? I just picking up on what uh, Sarah was just talking about, um, about the, the politics in Iran having a big effect on the negotiations and on Iran coming to the table and their willingness to make a deal. Uh, in June, after the negotiations conclude the sixth round, Rouhani said that they were close enough to reaching an agreement that you know, if they had gotten permission basically from Tehran, that they would have been able to uh, conclude one and lift the sanctions. And th that didn't seem to cause a big stir in Iran. There weren't, you know, protests demanding that they reach an agreement and uh, and lift the sanctions. Um, you, you know, what does that tell us about people's belief that the sanctions will ever actually be lifted or have any beneficial effect on, on their lives? And how do you change that uh, political calculus in a very rapid time frame? Thanks, Max. Who wants to take that, our speakers? I'm happy to comment and say you change that by showing that sanctions relief is possible and real. I think, like, I remember the excitement of, like, when Zarif was mobbed when he went back to Iran after talks and back in the day, like a rock star. And I also remember the, like, how devastating it was when Trump left the deal and how many people have been suffering for so long over something they have very little control over. So I think if you want to actually restore that hope, it's not going to happen with words. It needs to be real. It needs to be concrete. People need to see actual changes in their lives. Could I chime in quickly as well? Sure. Go ahead. So just today, just to give you an impression of how uh, uncertain the sanctions relief has been. The Europeans had a blocking statute that said that, you know, they have to follow European law, which is that the JCPOA is still in place and that Trump sanctions were illegal. Most or the vast majority of European companies uh, decided to nevertheless follow Trump's uh, sanctions because they were getting all kinds of financial punishments from the U.S. if they continued trading with Iran. And since most of them obviously have much more of a financial interest and economic interest in the U.S. than in Iran, the choice from an economic standpoint was not a difficult one. The Iranians sued some of these European companies who cut off their contracts with Iran in order to uh, com uh, 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 comply with U.S. sanctions. Now a top European court has ruled that the European companies actually can uh, forego end contracts with Iranian firms if the sanctions cost from the U.S. side is disproportionate and, and causing an economic loss. So essentially ruling that at the end of the day, U.S. law takes precedent over EU law in Europe. With that type of a precedent, with a court decision coming in today, what confidence can the Iranians have that sanctions relief from the United States will be effective given the fact that it is almost a certainty that if there's a Republican president in the United States in 2025, the JCPOA will be scrapped. 
And even if the Europeans say, well, we're not going to comply with it, we have blocking laws, now we know that not only will the European companies nevertheless cut all their end, uh, end all their contracts with Iran, they also have the support of the top European court uh, to do so because of the economic pain that they are suffering from the U.S. sanctions. So again, we're having a situation in which there is such a lack of clarity and uncertainty about the sanctions relief, um, which to its core right now is caused by the polarization in the United States. And this is an important point for all, you know, all future U.S. negotiations. As long as the United States is as polarized and divided internally as it is right now, in which um, the, the pattern we will see, which is that every time a new administration comes in, they will either tear up or disregard the, the contracts and the uh, agreements that the previous administrations have signed. As long as that is the case, that means that the value of American promises in international negotiations are significantly reduced and significantly more hollow than they have been before, which means that the U.S.'s negotiating position is really weakened by this state of internal affairs. To expect other countries to pay the price for American polarization and internal division is simply unrealistic. The outcome will be that countries will uh, ask for a higher price to make a deal or will essentially not make a deal because they don't count on the promises that the U.S. is offering precisely because the U.S. will not be in a position to live up to its own words. Thanks, Trude. I think that's very important. Um, and, th and there's also this notion that Iran needs sanctions relief and this administration needs sanctions relief and therefore they have no other choice than to make an agreement no matter what the United States offers. And I think this overlooks the fact that, at least from Tehran's viewpoint, they have weathered the storm of maximum pressure, or at least the worst of it. And um, they do want, I think they do want sanctions relief. I'm just not sure how much they feel like they need it and how much they're going to compromise um, to, to meet can, the can United States. Can I say something in that regard? Sorry. I, I actually do think that they do need it. I think the economic situation in Iran is very bad. And even if they have managed to weather it, you're quite correct. That's the confidence they're having right now. It's nevertheless weakening Iran um, and uh, it, it's putting them in a very bad situation. Sara mentioned how it's affecting the COVID situation. The problem I don't think is that they don't need it enough or they feel like you know they can weather it. I think the problem is, is there actual sanctions relief put on the table? So, you know, even in the in the way that you ex described it, Nagar, it's it's essentially assuming that there's sanctions relief on the table, but they feel they can weather it without it, so they're fine without it. I don't think that's the situation. The situation is that it's not clear whether there actually is real sanctions relief on the table, not in the sense that the U.S. is not offering it, but in the sense, will it be delivered? Will it be sustainable? Will European and international companies honor it, even if the U.S. changes its position in 2025? That's the problem. So it's not really a real offer on the table from the perspective of the Iranians for them to respond to. And I think that is something that is so often discounted on this side. We assume that what we're offering will be delivered. And as a result, we're perplexed and frustrated that the Iranians are not answering that call uh, and then starting to speculate that perhaps it's because they don't want a deal. Perhaps it's because they want a nuclear bomb. Perhaps it's because... Um, uh, uh, they feel that they can weather the storm, whereas I think the real problem is what we're putting on the table, what we think we're putting on the table is not what they're seeing. 
And if I could add to Trita's point, I think, you know, one thing that is underappreciated is just if you, you know, actually relieve the sanctions, if they get back in the deal and the sanctions are relieved and, you know, there's some level of business, oil sales increase, et cetera, that really exposes the Iranian economy to the reimposition of sanctions, which is, you know, I, I think a possibility, maybe a likelihood uh, probably a very, very strong chance if Republicans get elected, uh, you know, in the next presidential election. So, you know, they need some sort of guarantees and some sort of protection against that economic shock, which is uh, quite extreme. We saw when the sanctions came back in 2018, you know, the the impact on the population, uh, you know, I think gradually kind of GDP and some other indicators are, are ticking up and so forth. And so it's it's stable, but it's not good. And, you know, definitely for the people on the ground, you know, Sarah mentioned earlier, you know, millions of people dropping out of the middle class, inflation near 50 percent. It's, it's really, you know, sitting here in the United States kind of mind blowing to think about just how that impact people's everyday lives. And, you know, to the point that, that Max brought up on, uh, you know, the, there not being much demand to get back into the deal, I think that's really telling of the Biden strategy, that it hasn't really, like, hit that, hey, there there is sanctions relief on the table, there is economic improvement, and Iran is not rushing into the into the deal. You know, what, what could Biden do differently? Well, he could have issued an executive order on day one saying, here are the sanctions that are going to be lifted, here are some restricted assets, here's a a humanitarian channel uh, to pay for COVID relief and so forth. And, you know, basically none of this has been done. I think, you know, the Biden administration is so afraid of attacks from Republicans, uh, you know, that they haven't offered anything and they haven't made, uh, you know, the, the relief that Iran would get under the deal feel real to the people on the ground. And I think that's a, a major mistake. Thanks, Ryan. Sorry, do you want to add anything? I think that's spot on. And I think the what I want to just make real is like we talk about all of this in slightly abstract terms. I think many of us now with the multiple waves of COVID know what it's like to feel like you're past something and then have to deal with it again. And the despair that can cause, the hurt that can cause, the toll that can take on your mental health. Now, what's happening in Iran is they're dealing with that as well as sanctions coming back and like feeling like they're getting to the point where there's hope and then it is just yanked out from them. And I think people underestimate what that despair is like and how tough it is. And I just want to echo Ryan, there is a lot that can be done here and it is not. And it is all stemming from a political fear of that is being seen as like appeasing the Iranian government Whereas I think we should be looking at this in how are we allowing this co like collective punishment to be going on for as long as it has? How is it serving anyone? At this point, we have seen it fail in terms of getting the U.S. what it wants. We have seen it have horrendous impact on people in Iran. This policy isn't working. The strategy isn't working. We need to try something different. And again, the right thing to do, the humane thing to do, the thing that acknowledges that people in Iran are people and are different from a government they have very little say in, is also the most strategic thing for us to be doing. Absolutely. Thanks, Sarah. We have uh, Matthew um, up in the speaker line, and we also have Aideen 
And I called on Reza before, but I haven't heard from him. So let's go with Matthew and then to Aydin. Hey, thanks for uh, having me. It's, uh, I think I haven't spoken to most of you in a while, so it's good to, good to hear your voices um, again. So we, I had two questions. One is that, uh, I mean, Trita spoke about kind of the unreliability of sanctions relief coming from the European side and European companies uh, adhering to U.S. sanctions. And it seems like they've been hinting, the Biden administration and the Gulf states have been hinting that Iranian trade with like the Emirates and Qatar and Kuwait and such can be an inducement uh, to get back into, to get sanctions lifted and, uh, you know, kind of dovetails well with the Iranian Saudi regional diplomacy. And I'm curious how you think this, you know, whether sanctions relief on that front maybe might be more reliable or, or more durable than sanctions relief on the European front. And uh, my second question would be, uh, you know, the the kind of elephant in the room is the threat of American military action. And quite honestly, I, I have a hard time seeing that just like them going to Congress and saying we need to go to war with Iran now, surprise, although I don't know, dumber things have happened. But I mean, what do you think of the possibility that the U.S. kind of, you know, pumps Israel full of weapons and lets the Israelis do it? Uh, you know, in a way that maybe hits harder than if it was just the Israelis going it alone, but, you know, in the minds of the architects, doesn't drag the U.S. in as deeply. Thank you, Matthew. Um, who wants to take that? I guess I'll take a stab. You know, I, I think the, the latter question of, you know, what, what's the likelihood of U.S. action? I think we shouldn't discount uh, essentially that every American president, um, you know, at least as long as I can remember, has vowed as one of their top national security priorities that Iran cannot get a nuclear weapon and so forth. And, and the implicit uh, you know, reason for all those, uh, you know, statements and so forth is like, if it comes down to it, the U.S. will take military action and, and set back Iran's nuclear program. Now, when you get to what the impact of that policy would be, it's it's absolutely crazy. It's a regional war. You can't even guarantee that Iran's nuclear program, uh, you know, won't come back and reconstitute itself and, you know, well, deeper, well, you can if you do regime harder change. to hit facilities and so forth. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really think that, you know, the, the U.S. is keen for it. Uh, you know, maybe they make a major miscalculation that it's necessary. I think the reason why, you know, there is no adequate plan B and so forth uh, is the reason why the, the U.S. continues to, uh, you know, engage in these talks, trying to reach a conclusion, is open to a less for less deal if that's what Iran wants and so forth. But, uh, you know, it's a very bad prospect. And, you know, at least as far as I know, I I don't believe Israel has that unilateral capability to initiate the strike. And even, you know, their attempts to get long-range bombers and so forth, those wouldn't be delivered to 2024 and so forth. So really, I think, you know, as Trita said earlier, you know, it might be Israel tries to start something and hopes the U.S. can finish it. But I don't really think they have the capability uh, to do the, the, the massive strikes and, and you know, uh, fallouts that and, and prepare for the fallout that would come from something like that. But happy to to hear from others on that thanks ryan Tria, do you want to comment on this i'm i'm so sorry i had some technical difficulties so i didn't hear the question uh, so the first question was basically whether um kind of sanctions because the u.s has kind of and the gulf states have kind of been hinting that uh 
that might be, you know, economic deals with the Gulf might be on the table with the new JCPOA. So do you think those guarantees might be more durable than European ones? And the second one was basically, I, I, I think it's it's hard. I, I find it hard to see the U.S., you know, uh, actually, I find it hard to see Biden going to the Congress and the American people and being like, hey, we actually have to go to war with Iran right now because they called our bluff. But, I mean, what do you think of the possibility of the U.S. kind of uh, facilitating an Israeli strike, you know, kind of enhancing them to the point where they can do more damage than if it was just them on their own, but, you know, still ostensibly not getting U.S. forces involved? Um, I'll jump in because I think Trita's having some technical difficulties again. Go ahead. Um. I think, look, I agree with what Trita said that it is unlikely, but I also think unlikely is not impossible, right? And I think it is important to remember that there is proxy things happening around Iran and the U.S. And we've seen this play out before where things happen and then they escalate and then it is really hard for people to pull back, especially when all of the rhetoric is around going to war. So I agree. I don't think the Biden administration is keen on it. But do I think the Biden administration would seriously consider it if they felt like their back was against the wall? Absolutely, I do. Thank you, Sarah. Let's hear from Mahjoub. We have a question. Mahjoub, please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Nigga. I'm just... Um Two quick questions, uh, including the comment. Um, what is the options uh, Iran has um, when it comes to this negotiation? This is the second, the seventh round of the negotiation. Um, there is uh, nothing in the Iranian rhetoric but, um, you know, uh, removing the sanctions. Um, and the Americans, it seems, this administration has... One of the senior officials told me that it's very hesitant when it comes to Iran. So what is the alternatives? What is the option Iran has? I mean, one of the scenarios I think uh, should be considered that, you know, the Americans will buy more time and then um, leave the sanction hit more and more and more and more, which would affect the Iranian people. And, and I think in the region... Uh, has has learned that you know people are suffering, not the governments. And the Iraq is in one example. Uh, we 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 lived in the region and we we, we watched. So, uh, what are the options basically? The second issue when it comes to um, uh, military option. Personally speaking, as someone working on Iran, um, the minute that Iran that uh, American and Israelis feel that the cyber attack and other attempts are not working, I think that minute we should consider that military action will be taken seriously. Thank you. Thank you so much. Who wants to take that? Trita, Sarah, Ryan? I can just give a quick comment. Um, and I think I heard most of that question. Cyber attacks are not working as it stands right now. I don't think there's a question mark in which, you know, the jury would be out on it. Uh, it is quite clear that those attacks cause short-term damage, but propel the Iranians to do longer-term advances. I think Ryan mentioned earlier on that the assassination of Fakhrizadeh prompted the Iranians to go to 60%. Earlier attacks got them to increase their activities as well. And in the process, 
they learn more about the fuel cycle. They gain more knowledge that cannot be bombed or undone in any way, shape or form. So I think we're already, we have long been in a situation in which those type of spectacular headline grabbing uh, attacks uh, create short-term benefits from the standpoint of Israel uh, or the United States, but uh, in the medium and the long term, they're actually utterly counterproductive. We would not be in the current situation if they were not. I think when it comes to um, going back to what I said earlier on, I think part of the reason why there is uh, a sense of um, confidence on the Iranian side is precisely what I think earlier speakers also mentioned, that both the, the military option is is much more hollow than it was before. And the United States has already thrown everything it could at Iran from a sanction standpoint, and it did not cause them to break. They're certainly not flourishing. They're suffering tremendously, but they're not breaking. So these coercive instruments are not going to be, nor were they ever before, frankly, the reason why a deal could be struck. What's going to make a deal possible is that both sides are willing to offer the other side sufficient positive inducements and incentives, not coercive punishments. Only when that happens will we have a breakthrough. And and that will only happen when both sides have enough political will, courage, and capital that they're willing to spend on this. And I fear that we're not in that situation right now. Um, I don't see the Biden administration being sufficiently um, uh, willing to spend that capital. Indeed, if they were, they would have moved much faster uh, uh, back in January and February, and they did not. Um, Whatever political maneuverability they had back then, they have far less of it today, and they will have far less of it a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. Uh, Let me just say hello to the audience members who've just joined us. Uh, My name is Negar Murtazavi, and we are discussing the latest um, developments on the Iran nuclear talks that just concluded in Vienna, the seventh round. We have Ryan Costello from the National Iranian American Council, Sara Hakdusti from Win Without War, and Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute. Trita, if you can hear me, you got cut off, and I cannot hear you. So let's go to Mehdi. We have Mehdi or Mehdi as our next speaker. Go ahead. Okay, uh, very important topic. I have a couple of questions. We see the only country so far um, have used nuclear weapons is America himself, uh, herself. So in in the region, Pakistan is a nuclear power, India is in some other countries. And uh, we see even there has been always tension between Pakistan and India. But uh, nuclear weapons haven't been used. I mean, don't you think it's just normally the countries are having to have the balance of military power uh, in the region? So why so much concerned about uh, Iran? I mean, what's what's the uh, U.S.'s own interest about it? Secondly, considering the military attack against Iran, we have seen, I, I have, have America learned from the past we see invading I- Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, it has served nothing apart from de-establishing the countries furthermore. Lots of innocent lives lost, more hunger and instability. 
so why you know having so many experiments uh, using the military power still the west especially the us has not learned its lessons why they cannot um, you know come, come uh, bring uh, any other source or any other ways of addressing these these issues isn't it the time that military power use of military power should be stopped against other countries by america or U- un thank you who wants to take that trita ryan sara i'm happy to take that i think that look it is really clear that there is not a military solution to this challenge and i think it's really important to step back and say if the problem we are trying to solve is a nuclear iran the only thing that has ever worked in getting there is a diplomatic solution that included carrots right and right now the strategy for the last few years with iran has been let's have a stick and then a bigger stick and then a mallet and we have seen that it's not working it's just not working and we all know that there is no military solution to this challenge the only thing that will work is a diplomatic solution and for a diplomatic solution to be viable it needs for it to have real sanctions relief and trito was right to get there we are going to need more political will and what is holding us back is people who have constantly attacked sanctions relief and i just want to say again like it is not okay to continue to collectively punish a population that has very little say in its government in the midst of a global pandemic that in of itself is not okay and it's also again not strategic if we want to turn this around if we want to solve this issue we need to think about what real sanctions relief looks like and get back into a real diplomatic headspace Thank you Sarah. Let's hear from Aviv. We have Aviv and then I'll go to Mehdi. My question to the panel is what do you think is uh, important from Israel, the Israeli side of the politics of the negotiations? Uh, as you probably know the current government is resuming the the former government policy. So what could be another influence of the Israeli side of the the question thank you thank you that's a great question who wants to take that well, i think trita's literally written the book on this topic but uh you know i i think he's uh he's having some technical difficulties so i i'll just you know observe that i think it's really interesting how many uh people from the security establishment have come out and said that it was a real a uh, strategic error for uh, Israel to push uh Donald Trump to exit the nuclear deal and pursue maximum pressure without any realistic uh end goal in mind uh so you know pretty much everybody who's been 
you know, coming out lately, who's been tracking the military situation on Iran's nuclear program has said massive error on maximum pressure. It was, uh, you know, it, it led to an accelerating Iranian nuclear program. It, it, it expanded the program. It increased the threat to Israel and so on and so forth. I, I, I think the political side, you're seeing a, an entirely different calculation, that the politics are such that, um, you know, railing against any nuclear deal with Iran is, is kind of expected from an Israeli prime minister at this point, that Bennett can't be seen as being more dovish than Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, so I, I, I do think that's, uh, you know, unfortunate because when you look at the security situation, I think it's pretty clear. Iran in the JCPOA with limited enrichment, limited, uh, you know, uh, centrifuge uh, production facilities, limited uh, operation of IR-1 centrifuges, all of this is, is beneficial you know, for the U.S., uh, for the region, for Israeli security and so forth. It doesn't benefit anyone, uh, you know, for more states to have uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, that is, uh, you know, I think something that an earlier question brought up was, you know, is, do, do nuclear weapons establish some sort of deterrence and prevent war? I, you know, I'm not so uh, optimistic that that's the case. I think, you know, there's ample reason to believe that deterrence will work until it doesn't, right? So we don't want to test that theory. And, you know, more states getting nuclear weapons are hanging on to their existing stockpiles. It, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not good for, you know, people around the world and, you know, uh, our civilization as, <laughs> as it stands and so forth. So anyways, I'll, uh, I'll stop it there. Thanks, Ryan. Trita, I invited you. Um, so I'm not sure if you see the invitation, but as Ryan said, you wrote the book on this. Let's go to Mary. Mary Francis, hello. Yes, please. Uh, if uh, as Trita says that the uh, uh, European ruling on the lawsuits uh, essentially means that the American law uh, overrules the Europeans' own law, then uh, what uh, the solution then should be in the event of an agreement? I'm wondering if. He thinks that uh, putting uh, huge sanctions or huge uh, penalties on the U.S. if they renege, as the Republicans are likely to do, um, if putting in huge uh, penalties would um, deter uh, the uh, uh, Republicans from reneging on a on an agreement. Sarah or Ryan, if you want to talk about this from both a legal and also a political uh, perspective, the possibility of something like this. I can jump in. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's part of the challenge is we have the agreement as it was currently negotiated back in 2015. And I, as everybody kind of saw, there were uh, a lot of penalties on Iran when the U.S. left the deal, but no real penalties on the U.S. for leaving the deal. And so, you know, I think that gets into the complications of the negotiation. If the, the main threat, if you will, is the U.S. leaving the agreement again, well, that was something that wasn't contemplated in, in 2015, that, you know, essentially uh, Iran's nuclear advances would deter the U.S. from doing so. And that wasn't really the case. So what we end up happening here now, I think, is one way to read Iran's own nuclear advances, which are, are far greater uh, than what 
you know, was was going on on Iran's nuclear program back in kind of the, the 2011-2012 ranges, they're imposing a cost on the U.S. kind of after the fact for leaving the agreement. And they are sending a signal that if you leave again, we have a pathway to a bomb that is very fast and very clear. And it's not going to be like it was under Rouhani. Uh, if you leave the deal again, it's going to be a rapid uh, escalation and you're going to have uh, a major problem on your hands immediately. And I think that's kind of the uh, message that's being delivered. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are reading into it, uh, a lot of different things. But that's one of the main takeaways for me is that it's a, a reprisal kind of after the fact, after the U.S. left the deal. Great, thank you. Negar, I'm, Let's hear I'm back at least. It's okay, I can hear you now. Go ahead. Yeah, um, Go ahead, yeah so just to add to what um, Ryan said, I think it's really, really important to understand that precisely because this is a political agreement um, and there aren't any mechanisms inside of it uh, or automatic ones that ensures that uh, governments will adhere to it in the long term, mechanisms and what were put in place uh, in the Security Council resolution in order to ensure that there would be punishment um, if Iran broke the deal. So that's where we have the snapback. There are no such mechanisms if the Europeans or if the United States breaks the rules uh, and breaks the agreement. And it seems to me impossible to think that we will be able to get a durable deal unless something equivalent is put in, and it may be several different smaller measures uh, in order to just make sure that the cost of any country leaving, not just Iran, will be sufficiently high to at least be able to deter them and make them think twice. It may not be a guarantee, it may not be a legally binding one, but something that raises the cost. Right now, if the Iranians leave the deal, they pay a cost. If the United States leaves the deal, Iran pays a cost, Europe pays a cost, but not the United States. It's just not sustainable to think that we can go back into a deal that is structured that way. And I think from the perspective of anyone in the U.S. government that believes that the JCPOA is in the national interest of the United States, if that is the case, I think it also then comes automatically that one would need to, one would want to make it durable. And I don't think there's anyone who thinks that the JCPOA can survive a second exit of the United States. It's a miracle that it has survived one exit, but it will not be able to survive a second exit. So if we want this to be durable, we need to make sure that we address this issue, particularly mindful of the fact that by now, opposition to the JCPOA in the Republican Party is not a cognitive exercise. It is identity. You are pro-gun, you are anti-abortion, and you are anti-JCPOA if you are Republican. It's simple as that. And as a result, the belief that this can survive the JC, uh, a Republican presidents without these mechanisms is as close to zero as I think we can get. I will go now to Saba. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, I think Trita somewhat answered my question, um, but I think this far, like, we have established that the JCPOA under the Trump administration was kind of disastrous. And then Biden is not so much better right now with the whole like negotiations. My question specifically is that considering the fact that 
we are going through a pandemic and the situation is very different from before um, in terms of recovery, like economic and social recovery from COVID-19. Um, do you think, like, what do you think would be the ramifications of perhaps the next U.S. administration again wanting to to leave the JCPOA or, you know, uh, make changes. So I think my main question is what would be some of the foreseeable ramifications for the Iranian people and the government in their path to recover, uh, at least economically recover from COVID-19? Thank you so much. Thank you, Saba. Let's also go to Mehdi and then we'll go back to the speakers with both questions. Mehdi, I could hear you. Thank you. Hello to everyone. I just want to mention that there was, there is no about Iran nuclear talks. There is about U.S. sanction talks. There is no difficulty in decreasing or even stop Iran uh, Iran's nuclear achievement. But there are lots of difficulty to difficulties to stop or decrease U.S. sanctions. That's why Iran's Bagheri mentioned and says and emphasized that if there is any deadens in recent negotiations and recent talks, that's about the U.S. approach, not Iran's. Thank you. Thank you. That's also an interesting point. Let me note that the new hardline team in Tehran is in fact... Um, Referring to these negotiations. Negor, why do you call Iran's Bagheri new hardline? Why? Um, they're from the hardline or conservative um, side of the Iranian political system, however you would like to call them, um, that they actually refer to these negotiations as the negotiations to remove U.S. sanctions against Iran. Now, if any of the speakers would like to take the last two questions or comments, Sarah. Trita or Ryan? I thought Trita was, you know, maybe going to hop in here. But, uh, you know, in terms of like the, the COVID-19 impact, I think that was one of the items that was brought up. Uh, you know, I think it has been been very, very stark. And this, again, you know, gets to one of the points that we were raising earlier is that the, you know, failure to put forward concrete COVID-19 relief early, uh, you know, really had an impact on, I think, people's perceptions about U.S. willingness to get back into the deal. So, you know, those who follow the talks closely, those who know that, uh, you know, Zarif briefed the Iranian parliament and said, you know, here are all the sanctions that will be lifted if Iran gets back into the deal. And they're, they're quite extensive if you look at that list. They're, uh, you know, not just the nuclear uh, sanctions that were set out in the agreement in 2015, but all of those intended to obstruct Iran's uh, relief under the deal. Uh, you know, I, I, I think if a deal happens, there will be a you know, significant economic benefit to Iran, particularly in terms of, you know, selling oil, bringing inflation down and so forth. Uh, but as we've gotten to in a, a lot of points in this call, you know, if that then exposes the Iranian economy to the potential shock of the reimposition of sanctions, that's going to make them think twice about getting back into a deal that, uh, you know, set back their nuclear program, set back their leverage, and so on and so forth. So that's why we've kind of gotten into this, uh, you know, difficult situation that we're in. Yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. I think it's hard to also underestimate 
the damage that's already been done to the Iranian economy. And you hear about intergenerational wealth. And what we're seeing right now is really cementing like new intergenerational poverty as well. And there's also been like really fascinating research on how sanctions, especially broad-based sanctions like we're seeing in Iran, increase authoritarianism, increase that kind of harm as well. And I think there hasn't been a conversation about that either. So I think both things are really important to keep in mind in terms of the harm these policies are causing and the intergenerational impacts they are going to have. Thank you. Um, Let's hear from Rizwan and then we'll go to M. Sarjov. Rizwan, go ahead, please. Yeah, as in 2018, uh, uh, Trump left from the nuclear deal from Iran. And I think it was an unfortunate decision for uh, U.S. and also Iran. Because of uh, that decision, lots of sanctions imposed on Iran. That's why they can't uh, grow and their economics also go down due to that uh, decision. And recently, Biden's person uh, approach for a nuclear deal. It's a good decision uh, for the both countries, as well as Iran and as well as U.S. And uh, mostly Iran will be beneficial for that if he will uh, arrange and attend the nuclear deal and America um, uh, remove the some sanctions on Iran, then uh, their economy will also improve. So I think it's a good uh, way for Iran. And also uh, US will be some beneficial by uh, other uh, support of Iran. That's it. Okay, thank you for that comment. Let's go to M. Sarjov, and then we'll take another question from Hadi, and then I'll go back to the speakers. Okay, my question or argument will be toward uh, Teresa Farsi. I know the gentleman, through his article and his activity since 2006, since Iranian... Uh, I know him since the Iranian pipe, Iranian and Indian pipeline. I have been following that since Trita was uh, lobbying for that. As uh, uh, as my question is, as you know, as much as I know, the Mullah's goal in Iran is a nuclear bomb, and we all understand that. It is not hard to understand it. As a, a Baluch. Uh, Iranian Baloch, as you they called. Um, I will not call myself that, uh, but that's I have been uh, described this uh, title. Uh, the, the removing the sanction will be disaster, not only for the uh, world, Middle East, but for the uh, Iranian. Uh, uh, other nations, and as we uh, know uh, that, uh, what Shrita's uh, uh, response to that? I would like to hear him because he knows as much as I know that uh, uh, the removing a sanction or allowing to Iran to become a nuclear. Why this uh, guy is justifying or trying to justify the uh, uh, what's happening in Iran? and human rights violation and all these things, 
It is don't need to be so hard and so cool, cold blood. Okay, thank you, thank you very much. I, I actually, I don't think any of the speakers here are justifying the human rights violations that are happening in Iran. But let's hear from our speakers about, um, first of all, this uh, notion of Iran wanting a nuclear bomb. We just heard from the CIA director recently on how the U.S. sees that, and also um, the issue of sanctions relief and human rights. If Sarah or Ryan, you want to comment on that? Well, look, I think we've been hearing prognostications about Iran getting a nuclear weapon since the early 1990s uh, and so forth, and it just hasn't happened. So, like, you know, I think all these clear indications that, yes, Iran absolutely wants a nuclear weapon and it's united in that purpose, it's, it's fiction. It's not really the case. There are different people wanting different things with respect to the nuclear program, and right now the balance of power is tilting toward escalation. What Iran wants to do with that escalation, I think we'll find out at the nuclear talks. But you know, I, I think a lot of the, the slander directed toward Trita was untoward and so forth. And, you know, <laughs> I know as well as he that, uh, you know, he's really dedicated to building peace and, uh, you know, uh, advancing solutions that, that promote peace between the U.S. and Iran. So uh, really respect him and all of his work. Uh, in terms of human rights and the sanctions, I think, you know, you can't discount the impact that sanctions have on inflicting human rights violations on the Iranian people. You know, I think we all know that Iran's government government has inflicted gross human rights violations on its own people. But, you know, pushing millions out of the middle class, uh, increasing the, the cost of living, making it hard for Iranians to put food on the table, all of those things are an impact of the sanctions, and we can't ignore them. Not to say, you know, all the impacts on COVID-19 response and so forth, and making it hard to get PPE during a pandemic, uh, making it hard to get vaccines and so forth. So, uh, you know, really, I think that's an underappreciated impact of the sanctions. I also just want to jump in and share my respect for Trita and also acknowledge that Trita has widely condemned human rights abuses that happen in Iran over and over again. And this notion that if you are speaking up about this issue, you have to continuously do that is incredibly problematic and harmful. I want to echo Ryan that this kind, the kind of sanctions we're seeing on Iran are also a human rights violation. Collective punishment is not okay and is not acceptable. And also, as I alluded to earlier, there is increasing research right now showing that this kind of sanctions makes authoritarianism worse, makes that kind of power imbalance worse, and just accelerates all kinds of other human rights violations as well. So this is not an either-or situation, it's a both-and situation. And again, there is not a military solution to this challenge. The only thing that has worked with Iran's nuclear program is a diplomatic solution, and we need to get back there. Uh, Nagar, if I could just uh, just sure, really uh, express my gratitude to both Sarah and Ryan for their kind words. Um, I think they covered everything. I can just one thing I thought the speaker mentioned something about um, uh, some pipeline from India to Iran. Uh, I don't know which one that is. I've never lobbied for any pipelines anywhere. But just to su suffice to mention, um, in, in accordance to what Sarah and what Ryan said, war is the ultimate human rights violation. To work in order to achieve peace and avoid war is to work for human rights. Moreover, as Sarah also pointed out, the collective punishment 
of broad-based economic sanctions, which degrade societies and render uh, both economic flourishment, but also political rights and advancement towards democracy much more difficult, is also a massive human rights violation. It's problematic if our view of human rights is so narrow that it's only specific political rights that we want to defend. And in the process, we then favor human rights violations of the rest of the populations in order to achieve those other human rights uh, uh, goals that we have. I think there's a much better way of doing this, uh, which is to have a more uh, holistic approach towards human rights and respecting the human rights of everyone and recognizing that in order to achieve one person's human rights, you cannot be justified in then violating the human rights of a hundred other people. That is just not something that in any way, shape or form, in my view, is compatible with the principles of human rights. Thank you, Trita, for setting the record straight. In fact, this session is being recorded. So I ask our other audience members to please be respectful and um, do not engage in ad hominem and unfounded attacks. We also have... Um, Mashi podcast in the audience. If you can hear me, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I had a question regarding, um, I think it was a point of contention in the Vienna negotiations around which sanctions are included as maximum pressure sanctions. And of course, um, it was acknowledged during the Trump administration when he was intentionally laying a minefield to make Biden's job harder of uh, like taking sanctions off and reimposing them under the guise of oh, now there's suddenly human rights sanctions. Now there's suddenly sanctions regarding like regional activities and, you know, how like the Biden administration seemed to be weaseling out and pretending like they never acknowledged this as the reality, that these were still part of those maximum sanction, maximum pressure sanctions and trying not to remove them. And I don't know, I think it's like a little weird to suggest that this is like a hard line approach for Iran to suggest that these sanctions have to be removed too. Like, these were unjustly imposed after the U.S. unjustly left the deal, left its commitments, and started collectively punishing 85 million people. So, like, has there been any update on those? Like, what what sanctions are they considering removing? What sanctions are they considering, like, exempt from any of these talks? Uh, just, just wondering if there's any updates around those and that point of contention at Vienna. Thank you. I think we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but if, if you all want to add any comments, please go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's, you know, kind of the core of the talks right now. The big question is, uh, you know, how many of the Trump era designations are going to be removed uh, upon a U.S. reentry into the JCPOA? I think the Biden administration is willing to do many of those, perhaps the, the lion's share of the Trump era sanctions, including, you know, the sanctions wall that FTD advocated be built to prevent Biden from getting back into the deal. So I think a lot of that is on the table. But, you know, when you look at the designations, it's a much more complicated picture. I think the numbers that have been discussed are, you know, uh, the the so-called June agreements that wasn't sealed was about 1,000 of the 1,600 designations would come off. That still leaves about 600 
you know, most likely having to deal with either human rights violations or uh, Iran's missile program or, you know, various, uh, you know, sections of the IRGC and so forth. Uh, so I, I think it's difficult to, to say exactly where things will end up. I think probably uh, if the Biden administration is going to seal the deal, they're going to have to offer the Raisi administration something they didn't offer the Rouhani administration so that they can claim a victory in the negotiations. But we'll see ultimately kind of where that is. Kind of the the bottom line here, though, is that the Trump sanctions provided absolutely no leverage. In fact, it really put the U.S. in a horrible security situation where we come to today, where Iran's nuclear program is advancing, diplomatic pathways may be closing, and there's no real good leverage even to get Iran back into the deal that we got in 2015. So, you know, at at the end of the day, uh, if the cost of getting Iran back into the deal is trading in those Trump-era sanctions, or at least, you know, 90 to 99% of them, you've got to take that. Uh, I I think it's a no-brainer. You've got to to trade in the Trump-era sanctions to get the Obama-era deal. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Let's hear... Uh, final thoughts from uh, Sara and Shrida, and we'll have to close the room after that. Unfortunately, our speakers have to go, and I thank everyone who tuned in, and I apologize to those who are in the line to ask questions. We just don't have any more time, but Sara and Shrida, let's hear uh, final thoughts. I'm happy to go first if no one else wants to. Uh, I just wanted to thank uh, Sara, Ryan, and Nigar, and everyone else for listening. Uh, I, I thought it was a very useful and val- valuable conversation. My apologies for my technical difficulties in which I wasn't uh, uh, present throughout the entire conversation. I just leave you with one final thought, which is to um, recognize that at the end of the day, this JCPA is not just a nuclear agreement. In many ways, it is essential uh, for the United States to, to be able to have this agreement in order to make sure that the, uh, the risk of war uh, with Iran is essentially eliminated, not just reduced. And also for the Iranian side, this is so much more than just a nuclear agreement. Uh, it is about normalizing Iran's relations with much of the rest of the world, getting out of the UN Security Council Chapter 7 resolution, which had securitized everything uh, to do with Iran, which then is essential for the Iranian people's economic uh, benefits and, and advancement which in turn uh, is very, very important in order for the internal political evolution of Iran to be able to continue uh, driven by the Iranian people themselves rather than constantly being hampered and stopped by these external tensions uh, in which the nuclear agreement can help resolve not only a key part of those tensions, but also can set the stage for the resolution of the other, the remaining tensions through diplomatic means rather than through threats uh, and indirect uh, violence and war. Thank you so much. Thank you, Trita. Sarah, final thoughts? Sure. I think my final thoughts are, again, there isn't a military solution to this problem. The only thing that has worked is a diplomatic solution. And I think we really just need to remember the past as well. Like I remember during the Iraq war where some of the justification of that was the sanctions were so bad that war seemed like a better option. We don't want to get to that point again. And one of the big circuit breakers we need right now is one of political will. So if there's anyone on this call 
who hasn't already taken action, I would really encourage you all to reach out to your members of Congress and publicly speak up for real sanctions relief. Again, it is the right thing to do where we're at with years of collective punishment is not okay. And it is the most strategic thing for us to do to get back into diplomacy, to avoid a war, and to make sure that there's a win-win-win situation for all of us. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our speaker, Sara Hardusi from Win Without War, Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute, and Ryan Costello from the National Iranian-American Council. We have about 300 people listening in. We went up to 400 at some point. And I, again, I apologize to everyone who are waiting in line to ask questions. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Well, until our next space, um, I thank you all and hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks so much. Happy Yalda. Thank you. Happy Yalda to whoever's celebrating. That was a conversation that happened live on the audio platform on Twitter called Twitter Spaces. I encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Negar Mortazavi and follow the Iran podcast at Iran podcast to get notified of our future conversations on Twitter Spaces. We're trying to have these on a more regular basis. You can listen to the conversation live and you can ask questions of the speakers. Thank you for following the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and then clicking on support. With your monthly contributions, we can continue our work and be independent. Again, that address is anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast, and then you click on support. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.